Well, hey, True Life, for those of you who were trying to watch online or did not get to attend service in person and went online later to to watch the sermon, uh, you realize that there was a sound issue for the first 10 minutes or so. There was a cable off. Our team didn't catch it um, because of uh, we were short staffed. And so not everybody was able to monitor the online uh, stream. Uh, and so we didn't catch it until 10 minutes into the sermon. Um, and instead of just putting out uh, the rest of the sermon, I wanted to kind of just record something. So just to catch everybody up, I, I think it's important stuff. Um, so forgive that this is being done in a car, but I just wanted you to uh, understand the context of the sermon. Uh, this sermon was about self-control, the theme of self-control. Uh, this is part three of a five-week series through Proverbs, uh, and we're reading a chapter a day. And so what we're doing every Sunday is looking at a passage of scriptures or theme that we're going to be studying in the coming week. And so chapters 13 through 19 tackle what I see as the theme of self-control. Uh, the key scripture that Scott King read on Sunday is Proverbs 16.32, where it says, a better, better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. In other words, what Solomon is saying is that it is more powerful and, and you have more strength to overcome adversity and, and, and trials when you have patience and self-control. Self uh, we don't always think of, especially our culture doesn't always think of restraint as uh as, as powerful we see it as a sign of weakness even um but but strength is is self-control wisdom is being able to exercise self-control and so uh what we decided to do on sunday was to tackle three areas uh three areas that i saw in these chapters that we're reading this week that where self-control is needed uh there was self-control with our words um there's self-control with our anger we are not to be impulsive with our with our emotions. We're going to feel angry. We're going to feel angry at things that are legitimately wrong. Um, but how we react to that can also be wrong. So we have to exercise self-control. And then self-control with our dis decisions. We can't rashly and impulsively rush into things and, and, and think that our plans are the right plans. And so what I want to do is kind of just touch on self-control with our words, and then I'll cut over to Sunday's sermon, because uh, that's the part uh, that, that wasn't fully uh, covered on, on Sunday. So self-control with our words, uh, this is important for our church. That's why I want to make sure we're, we're getting this. Proverbs 15, 28 says, the heart of the godly thinks carefully before speaking. The mouth of the wicked overflow with evil words. So you think carefully. Or you end up overflowing with evil words. Now, what are evil words? Evil words are not simply uh, like plotting murder. Evil words can be anything that takes the focus and the glory away from God and puts it on ourselves. So it could be gossip, could be slander. It could be uh, being extra critical of people and things around us. It could be grumbling. It could be complaining. It could be making jokes about people and then saying, oh, I was only teasing you. And it was really just done to get a laugh or to be the center of attention. And sometimes it's just dominating conversations or, or having to one up people with stories. Um, the example I used on Sunday was, oh, you know, the person at the party who uh, he hears somebody else talk about a, getting a broken leg while they were skiing. And then this guy has to tell his story of when he broke Two broken, you know, had two broken legs while he was skiing and, you know, got back on the slopes a week later. Like all of that steals glory from God and says, I want to use my words to make it about me. And that's evil. That's wrong. It's sinful. Um, and so Solomon is saying the solution to that is to think carefully before speaking. 
pause, filter a little bit. Uh, when you turn on an old faucet sometimes or a, like a well water, uh, the, the first few seconds, the water's brown and you got to let it come out and then it clears up. And I think Solomon's saying this, the same is kind of true with our words. Our first gut instinct is not always healthy words. It's, it's brown water. And we need to uh, uh, filter it first in our heads and our heart before we say what is in there to, to be said. Um, it, it, people sometimes boast like, oh, I just speak my mind. And Solomon's saying, yeah, that's not really a good thing. That's not something to boast about. That's kind of foolish of you to just speak your mind. Our minds are distorted sometimes. Our minds have brown water flowing through them. Don't just speak your mind um, because you won't just drink any water that comes out of a faucet, right? Now, he's going to zero in on gossip. In Proverbs 16, 28, he says this, a perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. A gossip separates close friends. Now, the, the, the word for gossip in, in Hebrew has the idea of, of one who reveals secrets. Uh, and so it doesn't mean it's false information. It can actually be true information and yet still gossip. Craig Rochelle uh, said wisely, everything that is said must be true, but not everything that is true must be said. You don't got to say it all. And you don't, certainly don't got to say it all right now in the moment. So how do we know when something's gossip or not? How do we know when something's unhealthy or not? Well, there's three qualifying characteristics that I think are helpful. Uh, number one, impure intent of the sharer. So that means if I'm going to share information about somebody, but I, I, what I'm really wanting to do is put them down or, or make myself and my issues look better. You know, maybe I wrestle with shame. So by telling you about my neighbor's issues, I just feel better about myself. And then we get to go, oh, those people. And then I get to feel like I'm not one of those people. I'm one of these people, the better ones. Um, maybe it's I'm offended. I'm going to share something with um, Betty because I'm about Allie because I'm upset with Allie. And uh, I want Betty to join me in kind of seeing Allie the way I see her, which is uh, a no good, you know, dirty rat kind of thing. Um, we want uh, people to take our sides and validate us sometimes. And that's an impure motive for sharing. Second qualifying characteristic is private information shared publicly. So this could be done with pure motives, but it's still gossip. It's still wrong. We're not thinking carefully. Um, uh, a few years ago, I heard, I heard this example. A woman was texting her friend Becky, and Becky was sharing about how she kind of had a hard heart about something. So this friend then texted a mutual group of friends and said, we need to pray for Becky her heart is so hard. But then she found out that she accidentally put Becky on that group thread and Becky wasn't happy about it. Uh, so it was gossip. Maybe her heart was pure. Maybe she was just burdened for Becky. And she was like, hey, guys, we really got to pray for our friend. But Becky was like, yo, that was between us, not between them and me, but between me and you. And you weren't to share it with other people. And so uh, especially in a church setting and culture sometimes we we get burdened for each other we we're relational we care about each other uh, and sometimes we are too quick to share other people's pain that maybe they don't want everybody to hear maybe they just told one or two people and they don't want seven people to know um but if you're one of those two people and you think well the more prayer the better you can inadvertently gossip about them and hurt them so a wise person thinks carefully pauses and then a third qualifying characteristic of gossip is that the person who's actually hearing the information has impure motives. 
like maybe I'm going to share with you something about Bob um, because I'm concerned about Bob and I'm not offended. I'm not hurt. I'm not trying to put him down. My motives are pure, but you're already offended at Bob and I didn't know it. And I share with you kind of recklessly and then you use it to build a case against Bob. Oh, I knew it. I knew it. Even Pastor Chris is upset with Bob. And and it's, that's not the case, but you're already offended. So you have a, a filter, a preconceived uh, perspective of Bob. Uh, and so we got to be really careful. Rick Warren said this. I thought this was really helpful. He said, when we're talking to someone about some, about something who is neither part of the problem or part of the solution, we're probably gossiping. So in other words, if the person you're talking about or, or you're, the person you're talking to is not part of the problem or part of the solution, then it's probably gossip. So you got to pause and say, are they part of the problem or part of the solution? Um, people have vented to me about things and uh, I have said to them, hey, you should go talk to that person that you're upset with. And then they've responded with, well, no, I'm just going to get over it and overlook it and move on. Um, but the fact that they're telling me is often an uh, indication that they can't move on. In fact, Proverbs 17 verse 9 says exactly that. Whoever would foster love covers an offense, meaning you you overlook it, you move on, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. So you can either move on and overlook it or you repeat the matter. But if you're going to repeat the matter, it's an indication you can't move on. You haven't overlooked it. You better go address it. And yet too often people go, no, 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 I'm just going to overlook it. But it's like, well, you told me. If you're telling other people about it, then you haven't moved on. You've got to do something about this. So you got to deal with it. And, and the, 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 the common kind of misconception that I see is that people think that if they're venting, venting to a spouse or a close family member or someone who lives in their home or a pastor or a preach, that it's not gossip. And yet that's not necessarily true. If they're not part of the problem and not part of the solution, it's gossip. So I'll tell my wife stuff, uh, st something, you know, maybe I'm frustrated with somebody. I tell my wife if she's going to help me process it, give them the benefit of the doubt, figure out how to um, approach them in a loving way. But I'm not going to tell her if she's already offended at that person or she's uh, close to that person. And I want her to uh, be able to hear a situation from them so that when they say, hey, Jeff, I don't know if Chris told you, I want her to be able to say, no, he didn't tell me everything. I, I don't know all this stuff going on with people's lives. Go ahead, share with me. I want her to have that freedom sometimes. Uh, so I want to be real careful. And you should be real careful too. And this is not to say that I don't screw up. I was confronted recently about how me and someone else who were aware of someone's prayer burden, we shared it with a third party and we shouldn't have. So uh, that was a mistake. So now I'm going to cut to where the sermon picks up because this is where uh, the sound ended up working on Sunday. So you can cut to that part. I'll move on from gossip. Let's go to Proverbs 17, 28. It says, even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. He's saying, err on the side of not being that guy who keeps talking and talking and talking. You'll, 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 you'll be thought wise just for keeping your mouth shut. If you're in a group setting and you're the guy that, you know, is quieter, people will go, oh, you, he must be a deep thinker. I wonder what he's thinking. You might not be that smart, but that, that'll be the assumption. And conversely, I think he's implying the person who talks and talks and talks, folks start to check out. And you kind of lose trust. 
Right? You've ever been in a group where somebody talks and talks? It shows that they lack self-awareness. They, they can't read a room. And then you start to go, maybe they have a, head, a lot of head knowledge, but they don't seem to have a lot of wisdom in the area of, uh, you know, relational dynamics here. Anybody ever experienced that? No. Okay. I have. You'll experience it when you live as long as I have. Don't, don't worry. So be prudent with our words. Err on the side of not talking that much. Uh, and then lastly, I'll sum up this, this section with Proverbs 18.21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. We take this for granted. But lives are changed. Souls are damaged or encouraged or built out based on what we say with our mouths. We forget this. We take it for granted. It, 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 he's saying, treat your words like, like a power tool, like a chainsaw. Right? A chainsaw can be used for good, clearing a land to build something, or chopping firewood to keep your family warm, or a chainsaw could be used for damage, like in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Maybe a bad illustration. But you get the point. Your words can do damage, so be careful with them. Treat them like a chainsaw. Be very careful with how you use them. That's the first one, self-control with our words. Second one, self-control with our anger. Self-control with our anger. We all, again, feel angry. We, we feel it. It's an emotion that we feel when something or someone is threatened or something or someone of value to us is threatened by something or someone. When something or someone of value to us is threatened by someone else or something else, we get angry. We get fired up. Um, what we do with it makes all the difference. Proverbs 14.29 tells us this. Whoever is patient has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. So patience equals wisdom. That's what he's saying. Patience equals understanding. Quick-tempered equals foolishness. In other words, being quick-tempered isn't just wrong or immoral or sinful. Being quick-tempered is foolish. You, you tend to make things worse. You tend to uh, pour gasoline onto a fire. We, we know this when we see politicians react to things and they, 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 you know, impulsively shoot out a tweet or a text or a something publicly, say something at a press conference, and we're like, ugh, can't believe they did that. But what they're showing themselves to be is uh, quite insecure, Right? Our world will say, don't let people get away with it. And, 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 and we buy into that lie. And so we can react quickly to try to, you know, make sure somebody doesn't get away with it or come back with something. But what we really show is that we're insecure. If we can't say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't need to react right now. I don't need to uh, have the last word right now. I can pause on this. If we have to react... Then, then we're showing that we're making a big deal out of small things 
and that we're not insecure. I mean, we're not secure. We're, we're not secure in God's love and God's sovereignty. We don't trust that he's uh, uh, all-powerful and that he's going to work things out here or he's going to give us wisdom to know how to respond. If we feel like we have to shoot off our mouths so quickly and get even and respond to that text right now, it's foolishness. It's not wisdom. Proverbs 15.1 says this, A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, this one is where I struggle. Of all we had, always have since I was a kid. Somebody comes at me. So what he's saying is that if somebody else is angry at you, you should respond with a gentle word. Well, I have a tendency if somebody comes at me with anger, it's like an invitation to a sporting event. Okay, I'm in with you. And I have to rise to the challenge. That's how I've always tended to respond. I kind of mirror your mood. So if you're hyped up, I'll be hyped up. That sounds good. Wisdom says if you want to de-escalate, you bring a gentle word. You don't match their wrathful anger with anger and heat. That's pouring gasoline on a fire. You bring a gentle word. I'll admit, sometimes I don't even want to de-escalate. I want to escalate. That's more exciting sometimes. That's more foolish than even, you know, the, the trying to de-escalate with a harsh word. I want to escalate because I want to win some battle. But trying to win a battle at the expense of causing a long-term, long-term war is foolish. A gentle answer turns away wrath. A calm answer... Calm someone else down so that you can talk reasonably and rationally. A gentle answer. So sometimes my, my answers aren't always um, like mean or, or, or fired up, but they can be short. They can be, um, the tone can be very abrupt. And that is still lacking gentleness, I've learned. And it can send the message that you're not valuable right now, or it can be dismissive. So a gentle answer is one that sends the message that, hey, you're valuable to me. And I'm not very good at that. God's working on it. Here's what I've learned, that this is not just a a biblical principle. This is somewhat scientific. I want to kind of show you this photo, if we have it. There, we, there it is. Um, so the amygdala is the one that, the, the, the amygdala in the brain is, is, is what kind of controls your, your fight or flight response. So when you feel threatened, it, it kind of gets triggered and it regulates your fight or flight. And that's important for things like if your kid's playing in the middle of the street and a car's coming, you want to boom, move. You don't have to stop and think and, you know, rationalize and reason. No, you just move. That's fight or flight. So there's a purpose for that. But when that's in, um, that when that's happening, then your higher cortex, your prefrontal cortex, they're kind of disabled and you're not really thinking out of that. You're reacting out of your amygdala. So if somebody comes to me angry or we're in a conversation and they're getting angry, what does that mean? They see me in some way as a threat to something of value to them, right? And they're starting to respond with their fight or flight hormones. If I respond with another heated word, I'm just going to keep them operating out of their amygdala, which is that, you know, fight or flight. They're going to see me as more of a threat. If I want them to actually listen to me, and if I really want them to see my perspective, I got to get them 
the left side of the screen, right? Thinking from that, that higher cortex, from their prefrontal cortex. I, I, I need them thinking rationally. Well, the best way to do that is to get them to be calm, right? A calm answer will get their brain to slow down from, you know, their amygdala to kind of stop controlling them and they can think rationally. But if we got to meet heat with heat and we think, oh, I'm not going to let them get away with this, we're just going to keep them in fight or flight and they're going to get us in that fight or flight and that's just going to go haywire, right? Make sense? That's maybe an oversimplified. I'm not a neuroscientist, but um, I hope you get the, the drift there. Proverbs 19.11 says this, a person's wisdom makes him slow to anger and it is his it is it should say, it is his glory to overlook an offense. A person's wisdom makes him slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook an offense. The, the idea of it's his glory has, has a, it's kind of like the picture of um, he shines when he can overlook an offense. He, 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 he shows himself worthy of respect. He shows himself or herself mature if she can overlook an offense and move on, not have to get even, not have to get the last word. The devil would have us believing that overlooking offense makes us weak. But God's saying, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Being able to overlook it, let it roll off your back, move on, not make a big deal out of it. You actually show yourself to be wise, mature. You shine like your father in heaven who pours out his grace and forgiveness on his people. So self-control with our anger. And now the last section, the shortest section, is self-control with decisions. Self-control with decisions. I only got one scripture here, but you're going to see it as you do your reading this week. Um, we make decisions all the time, right? Uh, some seem really big, who we're going to marry, where we're going to go to college, are we going to buy a house or rent a house, or are we going to send our kids to public school or private school, or are we going to homeschool them? Those can kind of feel big. Um, and then there's smaller decisions that are also somewhat consequential. How am I going to respond to this email from this coworker when they're heated and I don't know how to respond back? That takes some thought. That can have long-term ramifications. How, spending money. Should I buy this? Should I save for this? Should I give here? They can have consequences. And so Proverbs 15.22 says this. Plans go wrong for lack of advice. Many advisors bring success. Plans go wrong for lack of seeking counsel. This is King Solomon talking. Right? I mean, he was called the wisest man to ever live. And so King Solomon was saying, I can't just make decisions. I need advisors. I need people speaking into my life, my decisions, my plans. I need help. I can't just rush in and assume that what I think is best is best. So my question for you is, do you get advice? Do you get advice about how to manage your money or how to handle a marriage conflict? Do you get advice about parenting? Do you get advice about how to live uh, as a single person? Do you get advice about the big decisions and, and the small decisions? Or are you someone who seeks counsel? Or do you just assume that what you think is best is best? This is an area where I think I'm stronger than the others. 
um, have always realized that um, I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> so I need help. And so I need counsel, uh, whether it's as a husband or a father or a pastor. Um, I get a lot of advice and, and counsel, and um, it's been a help. It stopped me from doing things because my first impulse is not always... I like to say it like this. I, I'm good at getting the ball rolling, but it's often not rolling in the right direction. And people have helped me steer things and go, mm, this needs to be tweaked. Ah, oh, you need to think about this. And it's been super helpful. Are you someone who gets advice? Are you someone who can let someone speak in you and say, hey, that decision you're making, I don't know if it's the best one. And you can stop and go, you know what? Let me pause on this. Let me stop. This doesn't mean you're driven to make people happy and oh, now I got to please everybody who's given me advice. That's not the case. That would be, a, you know, the other extreme. But it does mean you're at least willing to say, okay, if I'm thinking this, but I've got three friends who are cautioning me against it, I should pause and pray a little more and consider a little more. And if I'm afraid to get advice because I'm afraid somebody's going to disagree with my decision, then that just reveals my pride. So those are the three areas that you're going to read about this week where we need to exercise self-control. Let me end by just asking you this. Where do you lack self-control and why? So where, which of those three areas do you think you're the weakest in? I said it was for me, it was the anger. How about you? Anybody here would say it's the words for me? Anybody? Okay, words, a few people. How about anger? More for anger than words? All three. How about decisions? Anybody impulsive with your decision making? Okay, okay. Next question is why? Um, and not going to have you yell out your issues, but um, <laughs> you can confess it to a friend afterwards if you want. Um, there's always a reason why. There's always something going on. So uh, there's roots, right? There's roots that lead to behavior. And so those roots might have to do with people pleasing or, or, or needing to be important. So for example, you might talk a lot. You might be just the person who needs to talk, 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 and outdo other people's stories uh, because you need to be the center of attention because you feel very insecure. Um, maybe you're somebody who reacts quickly out of your anger because you have a control issue. And reacting in your anger is a way of exercising control over a situation or another person. Maybe it's shame that causes you to gossip. You don't feel good about your life, but talking about other people makes you feel better. Makes you feel, oh, I'm, I'm not as bad as them. Maybe it's a lack of contentment that causes you to make impulsive decisions. You change jobs quickly or you buy things quickly because you're not content with your life. You're always on a search for some other high. There's something going on. And that's the next step is saying, God, reveal to me why. Why, why do I lack self-control in this area? Why do I do that? What am I after here? For me, with the anger thing, it tends to be a, 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 a justice idol, right? I, Fair is fair, and I got to make sure that somebody knows that they're wrong right now. But it's not up to me to exercise justice. That's in God's hands. And if God is God, then he can move in their heart in his time. 
And so really, whatever the root issue is, they all connect down to a deeper root issue, which is what we talked about in week one. A lack of awe of God. Remember week one? Where it said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the ultimate root of a lack of self-control is not having that fear of God. God's not big in our hearts. We're not in awe of him. He's not huge in our minds. That's the beginning of wisdom. So if self-control is wise and we lack it, then at some level, God's no longer big. And if God's not big, then I'm too big in my own eyes. And if I'm too big in my own eyes, then what I have to say is too important. This issue that I'm angry about is too important. This decision that I uh, am acting on impulsively, I need to go get it. I need to go have it. I need to go make this change now. It's too important. I can't wait. I can't be patient. But when God is big, when we have an awesome view of God, when he is the holy, magnificent God of the universe who's rescued us through Jesus on the cross, transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into light, washed away our sins, then we can go, wow, you know what? I can trust you with this other person who's angry at me or who I'm angry at. I can trust you to handle that to give me wisdom to know how to respond in your time. I don't have to react impulsively. God, I want what my words, what comes out of my mouth to be pleasing to you. I don't need to use it to get attention for myself. This decision, I don't know what to do. I want this, Lord, but I'm going to wait. I can be patient. I can trust you. I can be content in the moment. Fear of God gives us the ability to exercise self-control. I remember um, reading about this, and I'll, and I'll end with this. Um, Abraham Lincoln um, had a, a tendency or, or I guess a pattern, habit, of when he was upset with people, when people made him angry, he would write them a letter. And then he would stick it in his desk drawer, and he would often not send it. Then he would write them another letter that was a lot more gentle a lot more diplomatic. Um, and his, some of those letters were found years later, and they realized, wow, he never sent this. That was just his practice of getting out, right? That first, the, the brown water, so to speak. But he had the humility to realize, this isn't probably the best way to go about this. So let me just get this out of my system, write it down, put it away. So my encouragement to you is find some habits that will help you filter and process the thoughts, the anger, the words that are swimming around in your heart, the decisions you want to make that maybe God hasn't confirmed with people around you. Find a habit that helps you process that and helps you put it in his hands. Let's stand. We're going to sing a couple songs as we close our service. Um, singing, I know I sound like a broken record, but singing just has the power, the ability to take what we say we believe in our heads and, and put it in our heart. 
Uh, and so I, I, I asked that when we sing at the end of a of sermon, I, I ask that you would see that as kind of an extension of a, of a sermon, right? It's our chance to respond to God and allow him to sift our hearts and our souls. And, and on this last point, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Right? Singing has a way of making himself bigger in our hearts than when we walked in here. So that when we walk out of here, everything else, we can see it in its proper perspective. So as we sing, Lord, may you fill our hearts with a bigger view of yourself. May you remind us of what you've done, what you've accomplished through Christ. So that we don't feel the need to go act quickly on anything. So that we can do what Scott talked about earlier. Be still and know that you are God. We can be still. Because you're God. And we know and are reminded that you're God by being still and slowing down. So do that in our hearts, Lord, as we, as we end our time together.